The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ and His mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org. A reading from Isaiah, chapter 9, verse 1 through 7. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. People who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you, as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken on the day of Midian. For every boot of the trampling warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness. For this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord will ho- of hosts will do this. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. Thank you, Ryan. All right. Well, we are jumping right in to the book of Isaiah. We are, uh, it's going to be kind of a greatest hits from the book of Isaiah because we're only spending about 12 weeks in it. So we'll be um, jumping around in some of these passages, but we're, we're starting off with this passage um, as a way of framing the book of Isaiah and as a way of getting into kind of the heart of what's going on with this book. It's a book about judgment and hope, both of which come from the hand of God. Um, So my wife and I lived in Nashville uh, right after we got married from 1995 to 1997. And we moved away to Kansas and St. Louis and spent time out in the Midwest. And then we came back in 2010, we came back with kids. Uh, so we had a brood. And uh, one of the things that we did when we came back in 2010 is, I can't remember if it was that year or the following year, uh, when CMA Fest happened. How many of you go to CMA Fest? Wow. <laughs> That was such a great response. <laughs> no one. No one. I guess it's kind of like living in St. Louis. How many of you have been up in the arch? You know, nobody would be like, what are you talking about? Why would I do that? Um, well, I have. Um, <laughs> I decided that I was gonna, we were going to take our family and be tourists in our own hometown, which is not a bad thing to do. Uh, it's actually a pretty good thing to do, uh, to... to, to just get a sense for what happens down at that, at that area in Broadway. Um, and so we took, I, I took the kids, I think my parents were in town, and, and we went in and, and we, we just kind of ventured down, down Broadway during CMA week. And you can picture the scene, even if you've never been, which apparently none of you have. Um, 
But you can picture it. It's, it's denim shorts and roper boots and cowboy hats and light beers and sunburn as far as the eye can see, right? That's the, that's the picture. Um, and as we walked down Broadway from 8th to the river, uh, we counted over 40 stages where there was live music happening. And there were audiences in front of every one of them. Uh, it was just, it's insane. And that's, that's the town that we live in. It's a, it's a place where, where people love to party and they love live music. And uh, people come from all over. Um, and one particular area, that right down there by the river, the Riverfront Park area, um, there was a concert going on that we were, we were going to see. Uh, some, some people that my, my parents, my mom and dad were into. So they were with us now that I think about it. Sorry, I'm working out the memory in my head. But we went down and we had to kind of go through a security to get in there. It was, and, and, and it was packed. Uh, it was just shoulder-to-shoulder people. And, uh, and so I did this, this thing with my kids where I said, on my six, uh, which is a you know, military term for behind me, get behind me, you know, and we formed a human chain, you know, so 12 o'clock is in front of you. So, yeah, so we formed this human chain uh, holding hands and following each other so that we wouldn't get separated as we wove our way through this sea of humanity. Uh, that, that it was, it, for an introvert like me, it was, it was not my favorite thing that I'd ever done. Um, but we did that, and I think about that image of saying to my kids on my six and holding hands and walking through in this chain, and I think it's a pretty good image for understanding the book of Isaiah, uh, that the book of Isaiah is about following God. It's about following God in a difficult world, in a world that's hard to navigate, and the content of the book of Isaiah is God saying to his people on my six, don't don't be venturing off on your own. Don't be trying to figure this out. Follow me. Stay close. This life that we live is not easy. It's complicated. If I turned this mic into an open mic and said, uh, three random people come, come and tell us the most complicated thing that's going on in your life right now, um, we'd have some doozies of some stories, and all of us would be able to relate in some way. Uh, because life is like that. It's complicated. It's not an easy journey. We navigate this world through a myriad of crowds of voices and temptations and frustrations and dangers, dangers that come from within, dangers that are coming at us from without, and it can be hard to follow God. And so when we get into the book of Isaiah, I want you to keep that image in your mind of this human chain of people who are on the six you know, who are on God's six and we're following. Because I think it's a helpful image, not just for understanding Isaiah, but really for understanding the life of the believer. If we don't stay close to God, we get lost. We get lost. So I want to give an overview of Isaiah so that we can dive into the passage in context. Because our passage, there's this blooming, this blossoming of hope. That's what this passage is, is a signal that there's hope and something very hopeful is coming. But leading up to it, it's about judgment. It's about a coming judgment. And so I want to give this overview so that we can get our passage in context. Isaiah is about judgment and hope. These two things are kind of hand in hand. And both of them, Isaiah is clear, and the Lord is clear through the prophet Isaiah. Both the judgment and the hope are coming from God. So it's not like God is in charge of the hope, but the judgment is coming from 
other places and God just can't do anything about it. No, he's being very clear that people have re- his, his own people have rebelled against him. They've denied his right to be their God. They've chosen to follow after other gods. And they've let go of the hand of God. And they're no longer on his six and they're adrift. And so they're trying... They're trying on anything and everything that they can in this search for peace. And it's profound how that has never changed. The culture changes. The ways to pursue peace and personal satisfaction change and evolve. But our quest for trying to find anything, anything at all, that will bring peace to our soul is something that human beings have been doing since the fall of man. And we've tried everything. There is nothing new under the sun, as Ecclesiastes says. And God tells the people of Israel, through Isaiah, that their rebellion is going to come at a cost. Their lives have been hard, but they're about to get more difficult. Judgment is coming. Specifically, pagan neighboring nations are going to rise up and they're going to invade and they're going to carry God's people off into exile. And this, God says to them through the prophet clearly, is make no mistake, this is coming from my hand. So the Babylonians and the Assyrians are not autonomously just doing this. This exile that is coming your way is coming from me. The exile will be his judgment. Why is God bringing judgment? Well, we see it in the first chapters of Isaiah and really throughout. It's because of rampant rebellion against him, injustice, idolatry. Israel's faith is corrupted. And so what God is doing is he's bringing a reckoning, a purifying reckoning. And so they're in this place when we find them here. The people of Israel are in this place that many of us have been in and many of us have observed others that we love in this same place. And it's that place where life is really broken and hard but it's, getting, going to get, but it's going to get worse. It's that place. I'm sure if you've lived for any amount of time, you've, you've had people in your life that you've looked at and you've said, they're, they're miserable right now, but they're not even close to the bottom. And it's coming. And it's a heartbreaking and helpless thing, right? And you kind of want and, and even pray for, Lord, Break it all the way then. You know, if, if, if they have to hit bottom, then hasten that uh, f- for the sake of the reckoning, for the sake of, 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 of breaking the hardness. And Isaiah is, is telling Israel, Jerusalem's going to fall. It's not only going to fall, there's nothing they can do to stop it. It's coming. And that's it. Israel, the image is Israel is going to be, uh, it's like a mighty tree that's going to be chopped down and all that's going to be left is a stump 
There's life in the stump. That's the hope of the gospel. But it's coming. And that's the message of judgment that leads up to today's passage of hope, which that's what it pivots to. It pivots to the subject of, of hope, that there's a dawning, a light is breaking. But before we go there, I, I, I want to linger for a minute and ask us to take a spiritual inventory. Because one of the threads that runs throughout Isaiah is that there are many who claim to be God's people, but some are pretending. And they know they're pretending. And so as a pastor, I don't want to gloss over that, and I actually want to stop and I want to ask the question, I want to put the question to you, are you pretending to be a believer in Jesus Christ? Are you taking seriously the things that we must take seriously? Is the central command of Scripture, which is summed up on God's call of the life of the believer to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, is that something that you pretend to do so that when people look at you, they will be convinced that that's you when it's not? Look, I know that we all fall short of keeping that command perfectly. Of course we do. Our hope is in the finished work of Christ. I know that the hope of the gospel is that Christ has kept that command perfectly on our behalf, right? So, so, when, so when, the Lord, when, when the Father looks at us, he sees the righteousness of Christ and that alone, and that's why we're accepted in his sight. That's why we're justified in the sight of God is because he sees the righteousness of Christ on me. Not some mix of his righteousness and mine, not a timeline of me just getting better and him saying, oh, he's going in the right direction. He sees the righteousness of Christ, period. So I know that. Theologically, we hold on to that, and yet it still remains that the call on our life is to love the Lord our God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength, and that this is the way that we keep the law. And so the question is, are you pretending? And here's the thing. If you are, and you're good at it, you may be the only person in this room who knows that that's the case. And so I'm asking you the question, apocalyptically, I'm asking the question that it might reside in your soul and bother you, if that's the case. How can you discern if you're a pretender? You may be asking yourself the question, I don't know if I am or not. Well, the great command is a call to devotion, right? It's a call to love, to love God. C.S. Lewis famously asked the question, if you were accused of being a Christian, would there be enough evidence to prove it? Um, and so I ask the question, is your faith in Christ the central part of your life? Is there anything that you can look at and say, actually, this other thing is, is if I'm being honest, is more important to me, uh, holds a greater value to me than my relationship with Christ? Do you pray? Do you spend time in Scripture? Is the local church more of a bother than a joy? Do you seek to grow spiritually? Is that something on your list of things that you want, that I want to grow spiritually? Do you worship God? It's hard, that question right there, do you worship God? I mean, we live in a culture very consumeristic, right? Services are provided to help us have experiences. But that's not the same thing as worshiping God, right? Right? 
Do you worship God? Delight in his goodness. Do you thank him for his mercy and his grace? Unprompted just because it matters to you. I ask these questions because when we go through difficult seasons, one of the things that we can do is we can somehow think, because I'm in this difficult season, God has somehow dropped a ball somewhere. Like, like he's at fault because he missed something. And so seasons of struggle come and we wonder, God, do you even see me? Do you see that I'm going through this? And one of the things that we learn from the book of Isaiah is that seasons of struggle are not signs of God's neglect. But they are very often signs of his refining. That he's breaking something in us. Scripture bears this out. Hebrews 12.6 tells us the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son he receives. So I don't want us to be unaware here, right? It's important. We often live as though, and tell me, just think about if, whether this is true for you, what I'm about to say. We often live as though it's God's job to protect our comfort and to promote our success. God, it's your job to protect my comfort, to promote my success. But if we're not on his six and we're only pretending to follow, sometimes the way he loves us best is by letting our house of cards fall. That's heavy. I'm saying something heavy. I'm rattling a cage, you know. Have you ever read uh, C.S. Lewis's book, A Grief Observed? We quote C.S. Lewis here a lot. Guess what? I'm going to borrow a quote from Stacy Croft at at Music Row. He he said this last week as he was quoting C.S. Lewis. He said, listen, I quote C.S. Lewis a lot, and here's what I need you to know about that. Get over it. (laughs) Uh, C.S. Lewis wrote this book called A Grief Observed. He wrote it right after his wife died. Um, And... uh, uh, from, from a cancer, bone cancer. And, um, and it's a book of grief. He's pro, he's pro, C.S. Lewis, this, this person who has this incredibly organized, thoughtful, analytical mind, a genius with apologetics, wrote this book, and it's in a completely other category, where it's in four sections, and it's just, what he did is he got these uh, composition notebooks that his students would, would write their compositions in, and he, and he got four of them, and he said, I'm going to just use these four books and write about my grief. I'm in the middle of it, and when I filled the four books, I'm done. And it's raw, and it's powerful. And he talks about this image of a house of cards, and he's, in, his, in his grief, he's looking at his faith. And he's asking the question, has my faith just been a house of cards? And then he draws the conclusion where he says, if it has been, then it is a mercy from the Lord that he would knock it down. God's love is a purifying love. As Paul implored the church in Corinth, God's word implies us too. Paul writes this, Since we have these promises, beloved, let us us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. 
And so I'm, I'm, I'm lingering on this to say, can you hear? Can you hear what I'm saying? If there's anything we're to take seriously, it's this. Who are you to God? Who is he to you? It's what Isaiah's put into the people of the Lord in this book. And so with that warning, <laughs> I want us to turn to today's passage and we're gonna walk through it quickly. Um, but here we run into this powerful declaration of hope. Isaiah and his people are looking out. They're seeing this hard road ahead. The exile's coming. The fall of Jerusalem's coming. Things are going to be chopped down and burned. And in this chapter, he turns to hope. As hard as it can be to see hope sometimes, Isaiah can see it. And where he sees it is he sees it in God. The hope is in him. What's happening then in the moment and what's done in the past is done but what's coming, though, is this glorious reversal. What's happening in the moment for Isaiah, what's happening in the here and now, it's just, he's, he's acknowledging it's so concentrated. It's so, it's so right here in this area, and we as a people are in this chokehold, and rescue seems impossible, but it's all going to break loose. It's going to break loose soon, and it's going to break loose with abandon. People walking in darkness have seen a great light. And this isn't a metaphor, it's a reality, right? Freedom and joy are going to be restored to those who just can't even see freedom and joy on the horizon. A deep, deep darkness is going to lift and a new light is going to dawn. It makes me think, I'm a person who, you know, feels basically the way the weather looks, right? So... <laughs> If we have a two weeks of rain, three weeks of rain, it feels to me uh, like it's just always raining and it's never going to not rain, and I feel just gloomy and sad. So if we have about a four-day stretch of rain, just shoot me an email and tell me everything's going to be okay, um, <laughs> that there still is a sun burning in the cosmos and, and it's all going to be fine. But, you know, I, I get that way. I know a lot of you do too, where you just have that feeling of, I, I'm in this place where it just seems like winter is going on and on and on. And I can't even remember spring anymore. I don't even know what it's like. I don't even want to hope in it because it may never come and it may just always be gray and rainy like this. But then it comes and it's awesome and the darkness lifts and it resets and you take that breath of joy. It happens to us. And Isaiah is saying here, listen, God is multiplying the nations and increasing its joy. This, this concentrated struggle that Israel is having in this place, it, there's this new light that's coming and it's gonna affect not just them, but everybody, the nations beyond the reaches of Israel, the world. This great reversal of hope isn't going to be restricted to Israel alone. It's gonna expand beyond, down through time. It's gonna reach us in the junior ballroom of the Embassy Suites Hotel. It's amazing. And it's gonna increase and deepen the world over, and nations are going to rejoice, and they're going to rejoice together, like people rejoicing in a harvest, like people gladly dividing the spoils of war because the war is over. What's going to mark that? What's going to mark that glorious reversal? What's going to be the cause for the joy? Our text in verses 4, 5, and 6 spell out three reasons. They all start with the word for or because. And they're these, the three reasons. There's going to be a release from oppression. There's going to be the end of war. 
and the birth of a perfect ruler. Release from oppression. We see this in 9.4. For the yoke of his burden and the staff from his shoulder and the rod of his oppressor you've broken. God's going to break the yoke of our burden. The staff that's on our shoulder, the rod of the oppressor. And so what burdens you right now? What's the thing that you look at and you say, this is the thing that is just soul crushing to me. It will not always be. It will be broken. What keeps you down? What smothers your heart? One day, gone. Gone, like the end of winter. There's the end of war. Every boot of the warrior and every blood-stained garment, I say, is going to be burned for fuel. It'll have no other purpose. Imagine a day. Imagine a day when no one will want to fight. No one will want to fight. It'll be over. No one will ever fight again. Peace will reign over every corner of creation. Does this awaken something in you? you get, if you're on Twitter, it should, right? That's exhausting. All the fighting just goes on and on. Peace is going to reign every day over every corner of creation without end. And so what wars are raging in you? What wars are you serving in? They're going to end. The third is the reason, is really the reason why, is the birth of a perfect ruler. To us, a child is born. The son is given who will be a joy for the nations, for the world, not just for Israel, but for everybody. A reunification of a fractured world will occur under the perfect ruler. And the language used here for this perfect ruler cannot refer to anyone other than God incarnate. It's too sweepingly comprehensive. What's the language? A son is given, the government will be on his shoulders, his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Wonderful Counselor, he will be perfect in his wisdom. He will make no mistakes in judgment. Mighty God, he will be God himself, he will be nothing less. Everlasting Father implied we're the children, we're the heirs. Our inheritance will never be in jeopardy. It'll never be threatened because our loving protector and provider cannot die. Is this sounding familiar? There's nothing fragile about him. Prince of Peace. His rulings will be just. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end with justice and righteousness reigning forever and ever and ever. This passage is about Christ who has been born, who has lived as our king, who has demonstrated himself as our wonderful counselor, our mighty God, our everlasting father, our prince of peace, who has died, defeated the power of death, and reigns at the right hand of God, who calls us into his kingdom forever. If this is all true, why would we pretend? Why would we choose that over belonging 
Here's the cause for joy. God sees the chaos. He sees it. He sees the chaos, and he goes before us, hand outstretched, saying, on my six. Have I worn that out? Though his judgment upends the rituals of our pretending, though it can lead to places of desperation, a refining reckoning, a glorious reversal is happening. Nothing can stop it. How can we be so sure? How can we be confident? One of my favorite phrases in Scripture is in this passage. I'm sure we all, it's a kind of a taste thing for a lot of us, right? We have certain passages that just kind of jump off the page at us. There's one here that happens a couple places in Isaiah and other places in the Old Testament. And it's the very last line of verse 7. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. I love that statement. And the reason I love that statement is because what we're seeing here is, one, that God is not going through the motions. What he does, he does with zeal. And he does with the zeal of one who created everything. So he's capable. He's powerful. And his enthusiasm to redeem and restore and to heal is something that is just motivated internally because of who he is. His own zeal is the reason this is going to happen. We can be sure that this glorious reversal is going to happen where judgment moves into hope because it's what God wants zealously. He's committed to bringing it to pass. It's God's show. This glorious reversal. The reason that's beautiful is because it means that our hope is not that circumstances will get better. And our hope is, that, is not that humanity will eventually see things more clearly and turn it around. A lot of times our, we, we think, well, surely the next generation is just going to get it right. At some point we have to say there's a fatal flaw somewhere in that reasoning, right? If the boomers didn't stick the landing and Gen X didn't stick the landing... And the millennials, they don't seem to be sticking the landing. No offense. We, our hope can't be just that people are going to eventually turn things around themselves. It's that God will. He will redeem and restore because he's zealous to do this. This is what he wants to accomplish. What does God want? He wants to redeem and he wants to restore. What proof do we have that he's zealous to do this? A child has been born. A son has been given. Our wonderful counselor, our mighty God, our everlasting father, our prince of peace, Jesus Christ. He came to redeem and restore in perfect wisdom as God himself, establishing an everlasting kingdom of eternal peace through his life and his death and his resurrection. And you and I, we were made to be part of that kingdom. We were made to be in that kingdom, in that relationship with him more than we were made for anything else. Anything else. We're called to him to follow on his six as we navigate this life looking to the life to come. We live in a city filled with people 
who are trying to figure out who they are and why they're here. Nashville is an identity town. People come here to figure out who they are in the world, whether it's through academics, through entertainment, through financial success, through entrepreneurial efforts. Nashville is a town that draws people where they come to figure out who they are and what they have to bring. And as a church, we have collectively, plural, we have a mission to be people reaching for their hand. To be saying to them, follow me as I follow Christ. It's our call to be a part of that unbroken human chain that's following the Lord. And we ask, but what if he doesn't work through me? <laughs> Don't you know? He's zealous to work through you. The zeal of the Lord is going to accomplish his mission. He wants to work through us. One of the main reasons we know he wants to work through us is because he doesn't have to. Right? God can do whatever he wants, however he wants. You know? He had a donkey talk to Balaam. He can do what he wants. And he calls us. You will be my witnesses. And here's the other beautiful thing. We read this in Ephesians 3.20 that God is always doing immeasurably more than we ask or think. So he's zealous to work through us and he's always doing more than we know. If that's the case, what do we have to lose by being part of that chain of saying, follow me as I follow Christ? It's with zeal that the Lord has established his eternal kingdom. Though he doesn't need us, he's pleased to use us. And Jesus tells us, he says in John, I am the light of the world. But then what else does he say? He says to his people, you are the light of the world. You're a city on a hill. In God's wisdom, you and I as a church, think about this. And I'm closing with this. You and I may be the first light that people walking in darkness will see. Why would we not want that? Pray with me. Father, thank you for the obvious truth of this passage that a people walking in darkness have seen a great light because we're here because of the work of Christ. Uh, many of us, our story in this room is that we've, we've seen that light uh, come on when our, when our world was in darkness. And it was you working. And it is you working. And you continue to. And you do it because it pleases you. Because you're zealous to draw people into relationship with our wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting Prince of Peace, your son, the son that is given, the child that was born. So thank you. Thank you for being our perfect father, for calling us to be your children and to walk with you. It's a glorious thing. Deepen our understanding and our uh, love for you as we spend time in the book of Isaiah this summer. And uh, we just, we give you thanks and praise for your mercy and your grace. It's in your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen.